Blair. Just kidding. I am not a vampire. I am something even worse. I am a man with a podcast, the biggest parasite of all. And I thought that tonight we could do something a little bit different, a little spooky, given that this is All Hallows' Eve. So I have set up a mobile operations bunker in this spooky graveyard. I thought I could tell you about a couple of different weird and eerie stories from my archives. Uh, These are somewhat stranger than the elite crimes and misdemeanors that we normally explore. So we are going to loosen our usually high citation and fact-checking standards, and we're going to get a little wild to try and solve these cases in my files. I have also made us both jolly wee tinfoil hats to wear for this one. So these are tales of terror for which my sources are sketchy. They exist in the liminal space between the truth and citation needed and unverified link. And they are drawn from dozens of what we used to call websites before the internet turned into, you know, into Facebook and Twitter. And they require some wild speculation and a leap of imagination on both our parts. I, I can't prove anything here is 100% true is is what I'm trying to say. So let's hunker down and build a fire. A TikTok witch has sprinkled a circle of salt around this podcast to protect us from evil. And worry not, you may be able to hear some ghost zoomers approaching right now, but they can neither yeet nor dip us as long as we remain in the circle. Now, I'm going to melt some plastic in the fire here as well so that the flames turn purplish and look sick. My cousin, he says that you can do this and get high and the cops can't say anything. And while we gently inhale these fumes, let me tell you the first story for your consideration. This one is called Mothman K-Ultra, Fear and Loathing in the American Heartland. It starts with a sewing machine salesman going on local TV to share an extremely strange story about an encounter that he had one night in November of 1966 at the side of Route 77 in West Virginia. And by the time it's all over, nearly 50 people are dead. An entire town is traumatized. Several authors are counting royalty checks for life and a rough template for almost every conspiracy theory and media-fueled panic about UFOs and aliens and the US government has been established for the coming decades. That something strange happened between 1966 and 1967 in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, is definitely agreed upon by almost everyone who looks into this story. But what that something is, whether it was a mass hoax, a mass hysteria, a couple of misidentified weather balloons, a legitimate series of encounters with otherworldly, even extra-dimensional visitors, or something a little more grounded, but no less mysterious. Well, that has divided people for over 50 years. So I'm going to give you a basic outline of what's supposed to have happened in Point Pleasant and I'm emphasizing supposed to here because this is definitely a topic that's in the treat with extreme caution category Uh, and then I'm going to give you my wildest but still kind of grounded take on it so let's talk about the sewing machine salesman who was a guy called Woodrow Derenberger now he claimed to have encountered something pretty weird on the night of November 2nd, he says he was driving along Route 77 when 
a cigar-shaped metal craft appeared above his truck and forced him to pull over. And then a grinning man, as he described him, in a shimmering suit, climbed out of the craft and introduced himself as Indrid Cold. That's Indrid Cold. And Derenberger was willing to go on TV and radio to share this story. As soon as I had stopped, there was a door opened in the side of this vehicle, and this man stepped out and came directly to me, or came to the truck. He walked to the right-hand side of the truck, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck, and I had done what he asked. And this man stood there, and he, uh, he first asked me, what I was called, and I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened, we wish you no harm. He said, we mean you no harm, we wish you only happiness. And uh, I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. That was the name that he was called by. Cold is supposed to have started visiting Derenberger late at night and taken him on interstellar trips to distant galaxies. And Derenberger's wife and children at least confirmed that Woodrow was definitely leaving the house with somebody in the middle of the night for a period of time. Sometimes he would only come back at dawn. And at one point, he disappeared for six months and returned disoriented and unaware of how much time had actually passed with more wild stories about trips around the galaxy with his new friend. And he also came back with something else that should get our antennas perking, migraines, specifically migraines with auras. Um, I also get these. And sometimes I go blind for a couple of hours or I have my vision obscured by these kind of kaleidoscopic, whirling, colourful shapes. Um, they're extremely, extremely uh, disorientating. Anyway, Derenberger then began to receive strange phone calls. Sometimes they'd just be unknown men telling him to keep quiet. Other times it'd just be a series of electronic clicks and bleeps. Hello? Hello? His wife and children back this part up too. Uh, they recall picking up the phone to these calls quite often themselves. So Derenberger was worried that he was basically losing his mind. So he went to a shrink and the shrink gave him a clean bill of health. But then the shrink started reporting that he was receiving threatening phone calls in the middle of the night as well. And word spread around town about uh, Indrid Cold's late night visits and townspeople began staking out Derenberger's property, uh, trying to catch a glimpse of this mysterious guy. Uh, one night, two guys strapped themselves with hunting rifles and hid out in the bushes next to Derenberger's house. And around one in the morning, this long black car pulled up outside and what they describe as a tall, thin man in a black suit and tie stepped out and walked up the driveway. And he rang the doorbell and Derenberger answered and he seemed to recognize the man in the black suit and they spoke at length and then eventually the man headed back to his car and drove away. Now with the phone calls and the threats continuing and the headaches getting worse and crowds of people now gathering every night outside his house to try and see in Indrid Cold for themselves, uh, Derenberger grew increasingly paranoid and his mental health began to deteriorate. Uh, his relationship with his family went downhill and he maintained that his phone was tapped for years and that he was followed every time he went out and that people were breaking into his house and stealing manuscripts that he'd been working on about his experiences with Indrid Cold. His wife left him and he moved far away from West Virginia trying to kind of shake the crank label that his neighbours and the press had, had pinned on him. On November 12th, 66, five grave diggers were prepping a grave for a funeral in Rima Cemetery, which is just outside a little place called Clendenin. And they spotted what they described as a guy with wings leaping from tree to tree. 
Two couples were driving by what the locals call the TNT area around midnight on November 15th. And this was almost two weeks after Derenberger says he first met Indrid Kolk. Now, the TNT area is so named because of the abandoned World War II era munitions plant and the abandoned National Guard base that's there. This is where the couple saw what they described as a bird or something. They said it was seven feet tall, black or dark gray, walking with an awkward gait. And when it saw their car, it took flight and chased them. And they say it had a wingspan of about 10 feet. And although they, they flawed it, and they race back to Point Pleasant at a good 70 miles an hour. The bird is supposed to have easily kept pace with them, you know, looping back and forth in the sky above the car, sometimes ahead, sometimes dropping behind, sometimes gliding either side of them, level with the car windows, kind of peering in at them with these glowing red eyes. And when the couples got back to town, they had the local sheriff go check out the site. And he says that he found piles of ash and dust at the spots where the couples told him the bird had been. So over the next year, more and more people began to report the strange bird, which by now was being described as a giant humanoid moth and had been labelled the Mothman in the press. Uh, the local sheriff, uh, George Johnson, uh, he guessed that people were actually seeing a very large heron and a wildlife biologist called Robert Smith reckoned that it was a sandhill crane. And others speculated that it was some kind of weather balloon with red warning lights or reflective stickers on it. And that's what people were imagining they were seeing as eyes. Connie Carpenter was a teenage waitress at a local diner in Point Pleasant called Tiny's. And on Sunday, November 27th, Connie was driving home from a morning church service when she says that she saw the Mothman. It is supposed to have flown directly at her car and her boyfriend later said that... When she got home, she was a nervous wreck and she refused to leave the house for days afterwards. And even decades later, she still found it impossible to tell this story without shaking. She also developed a severe case of conjunctivitis, uh, clique conjunctivitis, the kind that can be caused by exposure to extremely bright lights. And she wasn't the only person from town to find themselves with a bad case of conjunctivitis after being dazzled by bright lights on deserted stretches of the road at night. And again, your antenna should be perk, perk, perking here. One night shortly after Connie's encounter, a man none of the locals had ever seen before entered Tiny's diner and took a corner booth well away from the other customers. And he was dressed in a black suit and a black tie and he was wearing shiny black shoes. He looked, the witnesses later said, as if he wasn't quite sure where he was. And when a waitress arrived to take his order, she described him as seeming dazed and out of it. And she wondered if he was stunned, in fact. And here on your antenna needs to be perky here as well. Uh, one version I've read of the encounter has it that the first thing he said to the waitress was, Connie Carpenter, does she still work here? In another, when the waitress asked him what he wanted to eat, he simply grunted food. And then he stared blankly at a menu that she gave him for a couple of minutes before pointing at a steak. And then he sat there poking at it with a knife and fork for about 45 minutes, oblivious to the, uh, you know, the curious, amused glances from the diner staff and the other customers. And then he paid his bill and left and he climbed into a long black Cadillac and disappeared into the night. So reports of Mothman and UFOs and strange lights in the sky and men dressed in black suits and driving black cars, cornering witnesses and threatening them to stay quiet. They began to pour into the sheriff's office and appear in the local papers. And the flap, you know, naturally attracted the attention of the ufology community too. John Keel, who is one of my favorite American kooks, he traveled to Point Pleasant to check it out for himself. Keel was a journalist and a, a ufologist, and his book about the panic, The Mothman Prophecies, that's now a standard in UFO circles. Uh, he established a pretty good working relationship with Mary Heyer, who was a reporter for The Athens Messenger. Mary was also the mother of Connie Carpenter, and she reported her own encounter with a stranger dressed in a black suit who visited her at the paper shortly after John Keel hit town. And the stranger asked about Connie's encounter with the Mothman and then about John Keel. And then, rather menacingly, he asked her what she'd do if she was asked not to publish a story about a UFO sighting. 
And Mary said, you know, I, I would publish it anyway. She went back to her work and when she looked up, this guy was gone. One day in February of 67, Connie was walking to school when a long black Cadillac pulled up to the curb beside her and a man in a black suit leaned out the window and tried to get her to come with him to chat about the strange things that she'd seen. And Connie refused, so the man climbed out of the car and began to chase her. And she got away, but later that day she found a note tacked to the front door of her house, which read, Be careful, girl. I can get you yet. While he was in Point Pleasant and visiting other hotspots of weird activity around West Virginia, John Keel also described being awoken in the middle of the night by strange phone calls, of being harassed by men in black and seeing strange aerial phenomena. And he collected dozens of stories of the Mothman and UFO sightings of the mutilated animals that were popping up around West Virginia at this point. And he began to work up a theory about the events that was way beyond your average UFO take. And he would eventually abandon his theory that Earth was being visited by extraterrestrial life forms from distant planets. And instead, he hypothesized that the Mothman and other cryptids like, you know, Bigfoot, along with the lights in the sky and strange flying objects spotted around West Virginia, he reckoned that they were actually what he called ultra-terrestrials, which are visitors from other dimensions and realities. And Keel himself, uh, he had actually coined the term men in black. But by the time he published the Mothman prophecies in 1975, they'd also undergone a revision in his, um, you know, his point of view. Now, they weren't government agents sent to cover up paranormal phenomena. Instead, they were themselves creatures from another plane of existence who were able to move between realities at will. As 1967 drew to a close, the people in Point Pleasant who John Keel interviewed began to describe increasingly disturbing dreams about a looming massive disaster, and they would wake up in the middle of the night or in the morning with feelings of disquiet and foreboding. Uh, there were reports of more lights in the sky, reports of more bird men hiding in the trees and men in black hanging around town. And Mary Heyer, who she kept up a friendly correspondence with Keel, uh, she told him that she'd had recurring dreams of unopened Christmas gifts and dead bodies floating in a nice cold river. And then on December the 15th of 67, the Silver Bridge just outside Point Pleasant, which spans the Ohio River, it collapsed. 46 people died, another nine were injured, and two of the victims were never recovered. And this seems to have marked the end of all the paranormal activity in Point Pleasant. And in the years afterwards, people described the events as a series of omens that had been sent to warn them of what was coming. So what the hell was actually happening in Point Pleasant in the 1960s? Now, 95% of the time, I'm comfortable saying, you know, it's a good campfire story, but it was all probably a really well-done hoax or, you know, a bout of mass hysteria. And I used to be comfortable saying that 100% of the time. But then I read an interesting article on the BBC news site back in 2010. It was about a little village in France called Pont Saint-Esprit. And the residents there recall how for a couple of weeks in the summer of 1951, they began to have bouts of extreme paranoia and horrifying hallucinations. Uh, they saw strange lights in the sky and they were convinced that bizarre creatures were chasing them. And then the panic ended and the hallucinations never returned. But in 2009, an investigative journalist called Hank Albarelli obtained a tranche of CIA reports and memos using freedom of information requests. Some of them concern Ponsan Esperi, and they mention a guy called Frank Olson. In fact, they, they copy him in to a fair few of the memos. One of them requests that another guy called David Bellin bury all files and evidence that the CIA has acquired pertaining to the incident in France, all its documentation and reports and stuff. So why had the CIA taken such an interest in such a tiny, out-of-the-way part of the world? Um, well, we don't know because they actually did destroy all these, all these documents. But Frank Olsen was part 
of the CIA's research into the use of LSD under Project MKUltra. And at the same time, the CIA was also researching bio-warfare as part of MK Naomi. And scientists have theorized that the Ponsan Esperi flap may have been caused by a form of ergot poisoning. So did the CIA deliberately poison French baguettes with LSD or ergot? You may also be aware that Frank Olsen was himself an unwitting participant in an LSD experiment when his drink was spiked at an agency retreat. Uh, he had such a traumatic trip that he fell into this deep depression and he tried to quit the agency, then mysteriously fell to his death from a window at the Hotel Statler in New York. Naturally, you know, I think he was pushed or at least encouraged to take a swan dive. And we'll be talking about Olsen in future episodes. David Bellin, for his part, he led the Rockefeller Commission's inquiry into the CIA's experiments with LSD, brainwashing and torture uh, after MKUltra was exposed, you know, in, in the 1970s. And yet here he is being asked to bury Langley's files on the Ponsan Esperi incident and doing it without making a peep. And again, we'll be talking about Bell in, in the future too. So keep that in mind uh, while we also think about the kinds of things that people reported seeing in Point Pleasant. So we got the lights in the sky, the cigar-shaped craft, uh, sinister men in black, so on and so forth. And also stuff like this, which is a passage from the Mothman Prophecies. Quote, <clears throat> In March of 1966, a shapely housewife, whom I will call Mrs. Kelly, was waiting in her car for her children near the Point Pleasant School when she saw an unbelievable apparition in the sky. A glistening metal disc was hovering over the playground. A door-like aperture was open at its rim, and there was a man standing outside. He was standing in midair. He wore a silvery skin-tight costume, and he had very long silvery hair. He was looking down into the schoolyard intently. Now, it's a recurring feature of the Mothman case that in addition to the Mothman and the Men in Black, and the threatening phone calls, people also report gentle, benign things happening, like the man with the long silver hair gazing calmly upon elementary schools or orbs of light that playfully streaked back and forth across the sky. And to me, I am picking up some kind of religious undercurrent to a lot of this, like archetypes almost. So, you know, the man with the long silver hair is like very angelic. The men in black are very demonic. Now, listen to this opening from the BBC article that I mentioned earlier. Quote, On the 16th of August, 1951, postman Leon Armounier was doing his rounds in the southern French town of pont saint Esperi when he was suddenly overwhelmed by nausea and wild hallucinations. And this is uh, um, Armounier talking here, and he says... It was terrible. I had the sensation of shrinking and shrinking and the fire and the serpents coiling around my arms. Now, no, again, the biblical turn of the fire and the serpents, it's those religious connotations. And that part of France is fairly religious and 78% of West Virginians also profess faith in some form of Christianity. And I would imagine that back in the 70s, you know, this was even higher. So have a think about that. And let's pivot again and, you know, do one of our patented zoom outs. And let's talk about how deeply enmeshed the U.S. was in Vietnam by 1967. And as we know, it wasn't just on the ground fighting that the U.S. military was deploying in an effort to win. They were working very closely with the CIA and other intelligence outfits to produce black and white propaganda. And they were also deploying PSYOPs. Lots and lots of psyops. And one of the weirdest was developed after a period of research into Vietnamese spiritual beliefs and folk customs. You see, some Vietnamese people believe that if a person who dies isn't buried in their homeland by their family and their friends, their souls will be trapped on earth forever. 
And given that, you know, a war guarantees that a lot of dead bodies will never be recovered, the fear of becoming a lost soul was very real to a lot of people in Vietnam at this time. And the CIA is always keenly interested in preying on the spiritual beliefs and the superstitions of whatever peoples it is that, you know, it's trying to, um, trying to subjugate, bring under the yoke of the evil empire, you know. So working with the army and navy intelligence the agency devised something called operation wandering soul and they hired a bunch of people from south vietnam to work as voice actors and they created hours and hours of tape loops of disembodied wails and cries you know children shrieking in pain and fear haunting voices expressing grief or sorrow or torment and then they set up these huge speakers in the jungle and they broadcasted all these loops at night uh, focusing them on particularly isolated villages that were known to offer support or act as bases to Viet Cong fighters. Now, I have a sample of one of these tapes here, which is uh, officially called Operation Wandering Soul 10. Uh, here we go. <laughs> Tropic Lightning News, which is the 25th Infantry Division's own little paper, they had an interesting article about the PSYOP on the 23rd of February, 1970. Quote, If you were a wolfhound of the 1st Battalion, 27th Infantry, 25th Infantry Division, and were at Fire Support Base Chamberlain on the night of February 10th, you might have sworn that the place has been haunted by poltergeists. Ghosts, that is. So just as a footnote, it's supposed to have been a bit of a failure in terms of psychological operations because the Viet Cong are fucking idiots and they were usually able to pretty easily discover the speakers and tape machines, you know, given how familiar they were with their own territory. So <clears throat> all of this is by way of taking us back to Point Pleasant, West Virginia, and trying to suss out some answers now. It is Halloween and I am in no mood at all for, you know, boring conclusions like it was all fake or it was an example of mass hysteria, you know, whatever. But I also can't quite bring myself to believe in the paranormal explanation either. So here's what I think might have been going on, you know, when I've had enough beers and I've spent enough time reading old news clippings, right? The CIA was refining PSYOP techniques as an adjunct to their MKUltra program on the unsuspecting townsfolk of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, between 1966 and 1967. Derenberger disappeared for six months and returned with memory loss and severe recurring migraines. These are two textbook symptoms of MKUltra experimentation. The clique conjunctivitis, which was reported by some of the people who had encounters. I think that they were being hit by high-intensity spotlights, uh, experimental weapons to dazzle them. You know, you're seeing it at the moment where there's this flap right now about supposedly the Russians are using some weird sonic laser audio weapon thing to make CIA agents feel sick or whatever. Uh, good, you know, you're a fucking CIA agent. You're lucky you're not burning in hell, being torn apart by all of your victims, you fucking... So yeah, I think Point Pleasant was one of many places in the world where the agency was doing this. And the town was selected because it was quite rural, it was small, and it was a place where news and therefore panic would travel extremely quickly. So it was the perfect laboratory, really. And I think the CIA also dosed people with LSD to observe what effect the drug would have on a community that was riven by fear. I think that they ran low-level electronic interference and made a bunch of weird late-night calls to drip-feed more and more paranoia into the community. And I think that the resulting hallucinations from the acid, which read a lot like religious experiences, you know, when you, you notice the symbolism of a lot of it, divine visions... 
I think that they're what you'd expect from people on a high strength hallucinogenic in a pretty religious community, or at least, you know, one where the culture is generally uh, religiously influenced. There's also an army base a couple of miles away from Point Pleasant, and I would be willing to bet money that if MK Ultra experiments were taking place at the time, those soldiers will have been deployed to poison the water or food supply with LSD and other hallucinogens and rig up light shows in the night sky. Uh, the men in black, I think it's pretty obvious they were CIA agents or feds who were sent in to spook the locals, um, but also make sure that nobody discovered what was actually going on. Uh, why did some of them act strangely? Because... I bet it was probably a boring as fuck detail for the most part. And it might have seemed like a good idea to drop a little acid and go for a steak at Tiny's on quiet nights. And the Silver Bridge collapse was probably just an awful accident. But it was one that drew so much attention to the town that Langley wrapped up the experiment before they were found out. Um, and this is, this is why I think reports of paranormal activity dropped off so suddenly. And there's one other interesting tidbit too, which is John Keel was himself ex-military and he had in fact worked in the US Army's psychological warfare and propaganda departments while he was stationed in Korea. I like John Keel's work, you know, I, d I don't buy much of it, but it's engrossing and it's entertaining stuff. So I'm asking this more out of mischief than malice, but don't you find it interesting that he didn't recognize obvious psyop shit when he got to Point Pleasant and instead he leapt to the wildest, most like batshit conclusion imaginable about ultra terrestrials and reality bending creatures. For my money, if he wasn't in on it, then he was being stalked and misled by the spooks because they wanted to make sure that he drew the weirdest possible conclusion so that people would eventually think there is no there there. And as for what the Mothman itself was, uh, well, I mean, if there was some weird creature stalking the woods and back roads around Point Pleasant, then yeah, it was probably just a big owl or a crane or something like that. But if you want to get wacky, you know, a little nutty with it, then remember that the US Army maintains a number of military bases in the Philippines, and it has done for years. The CIA was also known to import all kinds of exotic animals into the States for testing and experimentation. Uh, Jolly West, who was one of the CIA's mad scientists, he killed an elephant with LSD during one experiment. And, you know, just as an aside, the reason I like doing the show is because I get to say things like that. Um, so anyway, do me a favor and Google the giant golden crowned flying fox. Now, it's one of the biggest bat species in the world with a wingspan of almost two meters. And it is actually a really, you know, docile, timid creature with a taste for figs, but it startles very easily. And it can look absolutely terrifying when it spreads its wings and, and takes flight. And its eyes are known to shine yellow or red or green sometimes when light is pointed directly at them. And if you were the average person in Point Pleasant in 1967, you'd be unlikely to know what the fuck you were looking at if that thing was flying at you down a country road late at night. Um, it would be just like the CIA to dose a bunch of people with acid and then go to the needless time and expense of importing a couple of flying foxes from the Philippines just to see what encountering one would do to the average West Virginian. So that's my hypothesis about Mothman and Point Pleasant in the 1960s. One other thing about the men in black, though, uh, they may not be extra dimensional creatures or aliens wearing human skin, but they are out there. Just turn on the evening news.
Well, that got weird. Uh, the next one comes from when I went down the rabbit hole of the satanic panic in the US during the 1980s. Uh, this one actually prefigures the panic by a couple of years. Um, I've just put some marker pens on the fire. So let's inhale a little bit more and picture, if you will, New York City in the 1970s. Let's astral project to that shadowy Gotham, the night city, every neighborhood moving to the rhythms of disco and punk rock, sleaze and style and coke and corruption. Perhaps we could hit CBGBs and take in a show by the Ramones, or we could go uptown to see how the other half lives. Or how about we head over to Yonkers on August 10th, 1977, and watch as the NYPD grabs a pudgy guy leaving the apartment building at 35 Pine Street. They search his car and they find a stash of weapons and threatening letters along with maps of New York City. And the pudgy guy doesn't resist and he doesn't show any agitation. Instead, he kindly says, well, you got me? And the lead detective, one Detective Falotico, says, who have I got? And the pudgy guy says, the son of Sam, I'm David Berkowitz. The cops had finally done it. New York's long nightmare was over. The son of Sam, also known as the 44 caliber killer, one of the most notorious serial killers to emerge from the chaos of 1970s America, had finally been caught. David Berkowitz was going to jail for a very long time, and the Yankees could sleep soundly at night. Or could they? For your consideration, the sons of Sam. Berkowitz was a schlubby postal worker who committed his first murder as the son of Sam on July the 29th, 1976. He ambushed two women as they were sitting in a car in the Bronx and he shot them both. He killed Donna Loria outright and her friend Jody Valenti survived. And over the next year, throughout the Bronx and Queens and Brooklyn, his pattern remained more or less constant. He'd sneak up on couples in parked cars or else he would approach people uh, while they were distracted and he'd ask for directions or something and then he'd shoot them unexpectedly. And occasionally he'd vary up his methods and as always seems to happen with these things, the longer the attacks went on, the bolder he became. For example, he killed uh, a woman called Christine Freund while she was sitting in her car with her fiancé near a subway station in Queens. And then just over a month later, he killed 19-year-old Columbia University student called Virginia Voskarician a block over from the Freund murder. You can imagine the fear and the paranoia that spread around New York as the killings and the random attacks continued. And don't forget that this was also a period of time in New York City's history that's become known as the war years in the New York Fire Department uh, due to economic decline and political corruption and rising crime rates. A lot of people had begun to leave the city. And as they did, entire neighborhoods became ghost towns. And in 1975, the city nearly went bankrupt. So we had landlords and business owners who were watching their property values dwindle. So they started contracting arson jobs uh, for insurance payouts. Uh, and then pretty soon, every firebug and bored kid in the city started to get in on, on the action too. And eventually the Bronx was almost permanently on fire. During Game 2 of the World Series, ABC's helicopter camera caught a couple of building fires on live TV. The Bronx is burning was a phrase coined by the famous sports commentator Howard Cosell. And most New Yorkers of certain age will know what you're referring to if you mention it. Uh, the city is supposed to have smelled of burning buildings constantly. Uh, seven census tracts in the Bronx lost 97% of their buildings to fire or abandonment. And by number of call-outs, the New York City Fire Department was putting out more fires than Los Angeles, Detroit's, Chicago's, and Philadelphia's fire brigades combined. And the pictures of New York in the 1970s are incredible with 
just block after block of the city reduced to charred rubble. It looks like the end of the world. And then into this situation of like material deprivation and uh, bleak uh, declining fortunes, here comes what the cops and the press begin to call the 44 caliber killer. And then you have neighborhoods all over the city who began to suffocate under the suspicion and fear because the few eyewitnesses had all given conflicting descriptions of what he looked like to the police sketch artists. And when you look them up, they really do look like completely different people. So there was a sense that anybody could be the killer and that the next time you walked home from the bar or parked up to drop off your girlfriend or your boyfriend, you could be the next one to get killed. 300 cops were assigned to the case and the media had an absolute field day, you know, as they are wont to do. And around three in the morning on April 17th, 1977, Alexander Esau, I believe that's how it's pronounced, and Valentina Suriani were shot to death while parked up outside their house in the Bronx. And this time, the killer left a note at the scene and it was riddled with typos and spelling mistakes and addressed to the police captain in charge of the investigation. So yeah, this is the uh, famous letter where he actually gives himself the name. Uh, it opens up with him saying, quote, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hurter. So women is spelled with the E and the O flipped around. Uh, I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up to the back of the house. Other times he locks me in the garage. Sam loves to drink blood. And then, skipping through it a little bit, uh, interestingly, he, re he describes himself as being programmed to kill. If there are any McGowan heads out there, I'm sure um, you'll be aware of this already. But yeah, quite interesting. Um, and then he puts... Uh, let me have a look here. Then he puts... I miss my pretty princess most of all. She's resting in our lady's house, but I'll see her soon. I am the monster, Beelzebub, the chubby behemoth. I love to hunt, prowl in the streets looking for fair game, tasty meat, the weemon of queens as the prettiest of all. And then here at the bottom, he ends with, to the people of Queens, I love you. And I w want to wish all of you a happy Easter. He put W-A, want, so w want. May God bless you in this life and in the next. And for now, I say goodbye and good night. Police, let me haunt you with these words. I'll be back. I'll be back. To be interpreted as, interpreted spelt with three R's. To be interpreted as, bang, 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 bank, bang, uh. Yours in murder, Mr. Monster. So there are definite Zodiac killer vibes in this letter, uh, I always think. But there are even more in the next one. So... This was sent to a Jimmy Breslin at the New York Daily News, uh, and it opens up like this. Hello from the gutters of NYC, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of NYC, which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. Hello from the cracks in the sidewalks of NYC and from the ants that dwell in these cracks and feed in the dried blood of the dead that has settled into the cracks. So he goes on to talk some more about Sam as well. Uh, you know, uh, she he puts here, she was, Donna Loria was a very, very sweet girl, but Sam's a thirsty lad and he won't let me stop killing until he gets his fill of blood, Mr. Breslin, sir. I love my work. Now the void has been filled. Perhaps we shall meet face to face someday or perhaps I will be blown away by cops with smoking 38s. Um, and then going on. This is quite a key bit here. Uh, in their blood and from the gutter, Sam's creation, 44. Here are some names to help you along. Forward them to the inspector for use by NCIC. The Duke of Death, the Wicked King Wicker, the 22 Disciples of Hell, John Huites, rapist and suffocator of young girls. Remember the 22 Disciples of Hell. P.S. Please, please inform all the detectives working the slaying to remain. P.S. JB, please inform all the detectives working the case that I wish them the best of luck. Keep them digging. Drive on. Think positive. Get off your butts. Knock on coffins, etc. Upon my capture, I promise to buy all the guys working the case a new pair of shoes if I can get up the money. Son of Sam.
So there's some disagreement over whether Berkowitz actually wrote this one or whether it's a fake. And the cops were so stumped that they went to DC and Marvel Comics to see if any of the editors recognized this comic book style lettering that the author had used. Uh, they were wondering if, you know, it was possible that a, a comic book writer was the killer or the sender of the note. And they also set up a screening of the Wicker Man, uh, thinking that Wicked King Wicker line was a clue that the killer's real name might be spoken by a character in the movie. So at this point, you know, the clubs and the streets are basically empty after dark all the time now in New York. Uh, anxieties grows as the year anniversary of the first killing came and went without the cops making any arrests and the press took to calling it the summer of sam and then on july 31st another couple were found shot up in brooklyn uh, robert violenti was blinded in the attack and his date stacy moskovitz died a day after the shooting in hospital and it was also significant because the murder happened in brooklyn which meant that the killer was expanding his hunting grounds. So we're at six dead, seven wounded, and an eyeball witness told the cops that shortly after the last attack, she saw a suspicious-looking guy in a hurry tear up a ticket uh, that he grabbed off his windshield for parking in front of a, a fire hydrant about a block away from the shooting. The cops traced the car to a certain David Berkowitz, and when they contacted the Yonkers police, it turned out that They'd been suspicious of Berkowitz for quite a while themselves. Uh, he was a he was a non weirdo, like a, a strange learner type, not a harmless learner type. And they reckoned he'd been starting fires in abandoned buildings in the neighborhood. And once the cops caught up to him, as we already saw, Berkowitz copped to everything immediately. But you know, kind of redundant considering they found a machine gun, maps of New York City, and a forty four caliber bulldog revolver. You know, in his car. So from here, this is when things start getting even stranger because some of the cops working the case had creeping doubts all along that he'd actually acted alone. For one thing, there were the conflicting police sketches. Uh, you could chalk this up to shaken witnesses, misremembering things. But then what was Berkowitz's actual motive? Why had he done what he did? The FBI, the cops, the media, the true crime fans... They all love a good motive, uh, whether a killer is driven by a desire for control or to satisfy some dark sexual urge or to get revenge on somebody who wronged them, you know, mommy issues, whatever. But none of the profilers could ever get a handle on what had driven Berkowitz. And it almost came as a relief when he claimed that his neighbor's dog, a Labrador retriever, had been speaking to him, you know, commanding him to go out and kill. So now the cops and the media kind of had an, an easy out. You know, this guy was clearly out of his mind, except nobody really believed this story deep down. And it quickly fell apart after three psychological evaluations deemed him fit to stand trial. And Berkowitz refused to enter an insanity plea and then went on to admit that he'd made up the whole thing about the talking Labrador. Now, before we go any further, I should point out that the people who worked this case and reported on it and still research it today, they're all split on all of this. So we need to take a huge fistful of salt from, from the salt circle with us as, as we go along here. But yeah, Berkowitz got religion in prison and he eventually claimed in 1979 that he'd been acting as part of a team of gunmen who would all switch roles for different killings. Uh, he admitted to firing the gun in the first and sixth attacks, but he said that at other times he'd just been a lookout or a scout or a getaway driver. He said they were all part of something very much like a cult that wanted to sow chaos and panic in New York by committing random murders. Uh, he refused to give names because he said the group would go after his family if he did. Now, the first time I thought there might actually be something to this was when an investigative reporter called Maury Terry, who he basically became obsessed with the case. Um, 
he sketched out the events of the very last Son of Sam attack, uh, the one from July of 77. And he did this from beginning to end, and he draws attention in particular to a description of the gunman given by Tommy Zena, who was sitting in a car just behind Violenti and Moskowitz. Uh, Zena described the shooter as a tall, thin guy with long blonde hair who got away in a, a yellow VW. Berkowitz was a stocky, brown-haired guy who drove a Ford Galaxy. And Berkowitz also claimed that his neighbours, John and Michael Carr, the ones who owned the Labrador Retriever, he said that they'd become friendly with him in, in the year or so leading up to the first murder. And just as a, as a brief aside too, their dad was called Sam, which is where uh, Berkowitz came up with the, the moniker. So anyway, the brothers started to invite him to house parties and local hangout spots where they'd all get high. And Berkowitz says that they were also big into what he calls, and this is a quote, occult shit, Satanism type stuff, end quote. And they told him that they were members of what they described as a satanic group. And Berkowitz claimed that the group would go to a park in Yonkers, Untermeyer Park, and perform, quote, rituals and such. Uh, they were supposed to be big into animal sacrifice and bloodletting, chanting, all of that. Uh, he described this as a recruitment process, and he also claimed that the group was heavily involved in manufacturing and distributing child pornography across the East Coast. And not only that, he said, they would also sometimes bring children to these gatherings where they'd be drugged and abused. So you could easily dismiss all of this as the ravings of a, a madman trying to save himself. But for the fact that a vice cop working in a Manhattan precinct, uh, one James Rothstein, had been following up a couple of leads pertaining to strange ritual activity for years before the Son of Sam killings began. These leads centered around a group of unknown size that he believed were selling drugs throughout New York and were also trafficking children up to Yonkers. Not only that, but he had numerous tip-offs that a lot of very strange activity was taking place in Untermeyer Park after dark. He found evidence that there were a lot of animals, particularly German Shepherd dogs, that had been slaughtered over a number of years. And the day after Berkowitz was arrested, the Yonkers police were led to a shallow grave by uh, a couple of local kids where the bones of three German Shepherd dogs were buried. And they also found another 10 dogs buried all around the park. Rothstein um, first heard the term the 22 disciples of hell being used by a snitch to describe this group that was supposed to be operating in, in Yonkers, that was supposed to be selling drugs and, and child porn all over the East Coast. But he could never get anything going with it, you know, could never get an investigation sorted for it. So Berkowitz had already mentioned as well that the, the cult considered German shepherd dogs a worthy sacrifice to, to Satan and that he'd been present at a number of these killings. Rothstein also found trees and benches in Untermeyer with strange symbols carved into them. By 1979, even the New York district attorney was admitting that he thought Berkowitz had been working with other people. Uh, Rothstein was more convinced than ever that Berkowitz and this mysterious group were connected somehow but he couldn't he couldn't put all the pieces together he made plans to interview the Carr brothers until he discovered that John Carr had died of two gunshots to the head in North Dakota in 1978 which the cops had decided was a suicide interestingly before John Carr died Berkowitz had mentioned that one of the cult members had been brought in from North Dakota for the shooting of Christine Freund and her fiancé, John Deal, which was the fifth attack in the sequence. Now, John Carr's girlfriend also told the North Dakota cops that Carr had been saying for weeks that he was connected to the Son of Sam killings and unnamed people were after him. She maintained that he was murdered. Rothstein decided to press ahead and make an approach to Michael Carr, John Carr's brother, but before he could sit him down for an interview, Carr died on Manhattan's West Side Highway when his vehicle skidded head on into a lamppost and investigators could never decide if he'd lost control of the car or if somebody had run him off the road. 
And the Yonkers Police Department also had problems with this lone gunman narrative, so to speak. But the problem was that the Son of Sam case had become one of the few positive achievements for the NYPD, which was coming off a decade of graft and corruption scandals uh, in a city that was roiled by, you know, economic turmoil and high crime rates. We had 70 NYPD officers who were promoted off the back of closing the Son of Sam case and the department had managed to clear half a dozen murders during a time when the unsolved rate was especially high. Plus, they brought in a famous serial killer in the bargain. So there was money here, you know, in selling book deals and magazine interviews and things like that. So there was a huge amount of internal pressure not to reopen this case and potentially tarnish all the good PR that the NYPD had generated for itself. This may have influenced their approach to the unsolved murders of Ronald Sisman and Elizabeth Platzman in 1981. Uh, this couple were stabbed to death in their home in Greenwich Village on Halloween night, and the place was absolutely ransacked before the killers left. Witnesses reported about five people wearing masks and costumes fleeing the scene. The cops were completely baffled until a fellow inmate of Berkowitz at Rikers told them that Berkowitz had predicted the murder weeks before it happened. Supposedly, Berkowitz had said that Ronald Sisman was a marked man because the cult had heard that he was going to give the cops a damning videotape he had to beat some drug charges. Berkowitz said that the cult had hired Sisman to film one of their rituals, but they hadn't told him that they'd be killing somebody. Um, so while the camera rolled and this happened, he got freaked out and fled and the cult came looking for him, uh, apparently because, you know, they didn't want him going to the cops and because they, they'd also found a buyer for this movie, which then raises the possibility that the group was supplying violent porn to a much wider network of wealthy buyers. And I, I say wealthy because I can't imagine a video that shows a real rape or murder is particularly cheap, you know, given the risks involved. Uh, but so the cops there decided not to pursue this avenue because they were really wary of opening up the can of worms, you know, the, the idea that Berkowitz may not have been the only killer. And you can see here as well how like the basic tropes, for lack of a better term, of the satanic panic, they're kind of sketched out. We've got rituals in the woods, we've got child abuse, we've got snuff films, we've got connections to crooked cops, serial killers, and kind of hints that you know, some kind of elite connection as well in terms of trafficking the uh, child pornography and, and the snuff films and stuff. And I thought all of this was ridiculous myself until I actually went through what the researchers and cops had to say about the Son of Sam killings, um, the stuff that they dug up, not to mention what the survivors have reported. And I have to admit now I'm, I'm kind of agnostic. Like, I don't have much problem buying the existence of a wider network or a cult that was involved in, in bizarre stuff at this time. We've got the Manson murders, which happened only 10 years before this, and they were connected in a, a hundred different ways to Hollywood and the cops and some say, you know, the CIA. Um, and obviously the Jonestown massacre happened a year after Berkowitz, was arrested so it's not like cult activity is some you know anomaly uh, in in american society i mean basically we're still in kind of the echo the aftermath of the 1960s up to today as well and a lot of these kind of you know communal groups and stuff like that by the late 70s most of them had kind of degenerated into cult-like groups and then you lather on kind of the broader collapse of the economic settlement and, you know, the cynicism that was ushered in by things like Watergate and the Vietnam War. Uh, and you, you find it all starts doing very strange things to some people. And so I don't find it too hard to believe at all that a bunch of disaffected weirdos got strung out on Satanism and acid or speed or coke or whatever it was and started organizing random killings in New York. Mike Novotny as well, he was a cop from Yonkers. He was also compelled by the idea of a cult, particularly when Berkowitz claimed that a policeman from the Yonkers PD 
was part of it and had been involved in the shooting of Donna Di Masi and Joanne Lumino in November of 1976. When Maury Terry asked Novotny for a ballpark figure of how many other people might have been involved, uh, Novotny guessed maybe half a dozen, certainly no more than a dozen during the, the time span of the entire spree. And even a few of the survivors now believe that David Berkowitz wasn't the only shooter. And as far as the idea that Berkowitz is making all this up to try and get out, well, he wrote several times to the parole board asking them to stop annually reviewing his sentence. Because in his words, quote, I have done nothing to deserve release and I can think of no good reason why it should even be considered. And the Yonkers Police Department actually reopened the investigation into the Son of Sam killings in 1996. And as of the date of this recording, the case is still open. So let's loop back and pick up on that North Dakota connection. Because the guy who was supposedly brought into New York from the Midwest to help with the killings was nicknamed Manson II. Berkowitz seems to have been quite a low-ranking member of this cult if it was real. Uh, so he wasn't told the guy's real name, but eventually the cops showed him some mugshots to see if he if he could identify Manson too. And Berkowitz immediately picked out a picture of a guy called William Mentzer. William Mentzer is a convicted serial killer who got life without parole in 1991. Uh, he killed the film producer Roy Radin on contract. That's the uh, Cotton Club killings. Uh, he shot him several times and then dynamited the body to try to make an ID impossible. And he killed a number, or is suspected to have killed a number of other young women for his own pleasure uh, in California, throughout California, in the late 60s and 70s. Um, interestingly as well, Mensah was also an ex-Marine. Uh, he's estimated to have killed at least 10 people in Vietnam as part of the Phoenix program, which was the CIA's targeted assassination operation. The LAPD admitted that they believed Mensa was part of a kind of hit squad throughout the 60s and 70s. And Mensa was also supposedly a member of the Process Church of the Final Judgment, which is a kind of Satanism-adjacent church, which was founded by a couple of British ex-Scientologists and spread throughout America in the 1960s. The Process Church is rumoured to have partly supported itself with drug running and contract killing. Mensa also knew Charles Manson, and Manson himself was speculated to have borrowed some of his helter-skelter philosophy from the Process Church's belief system. And on top of that, Mensah is also one of the many people suspected to have been the Zodiac Killer. So here's my question, you know, again, we've had a few beers, we can get a little wild with it, right? Here's my question. Given the links between Manson and the authorities, which we now know about, you know, the possibility that he was some kind of protected informant or even an MK Ultra or Chaos Program op, and given Mensa's own role in Vietnam and then the murders that he committed back in the States, plus his link to the Son of Sam killings and the supposed cult behind them, is it possible that some of the most notorious uh, serial killers and criminals in the annals of true crime law are, at least in part, examples of blowback from the Phoenix program? Another question then presents itself given what we know about Mensa and Manson and the Son of Sam killings, is it possible that the CIA's own conditioning and brainwashing and assassination operations have inadvertently or perhaps deliberately created a kind of uh, production line of violent murderers who when they are out in the world operating end up attracting uh, unstable dangerous individuals like a David Berkowitz and inspiring them to commit their own series of spree killings Well, 
the hour grows late and the night grows colder. Uh, I hope you enjoyed these tales from the graveyard bunker, but now I'm going to pack all my stuff away and get the hell out of here because the ghost zoomers aren't scared of the salt circle anymore. I can see them now. They are warming up to yeeters uh, as ever. Thanks for rendezvousing with me. Remember that you can hit us up at ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. That's ghoststoriesend at gmail.com. Rate us on iTunes. Subscribe to the show if you haven't already. Urge on friends and loved ones. And don't get captured. Happy Halloween, friends. <laughs>